listening to ComedySlamRadio.com. From our studios to the world, we bring you the finest in quality entertainment. So pop some popcorn, grab a smooch buddy, and settle in for another fine show. From ComedySlamRadio.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com where we bring you national touring and celebrity comedian interviews. Follow us on Twitter at Let's Be Frank Show. And if you miss our live broadcast, you can find us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Frank's Podcast. And please contact us with any questions or information about advertising and sponsoring at Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank at Yahoo.com. And welcome to the Let's Be Frank Show with Dave Frank. We have a great show planned for you today. Uh, we have a great guest, uh, legend in comedy, uh, Jay Wendell Walker. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing really good. I'm saying, yep. Good. So you have been in comedy for a little over 50 years now, huh? 52 years, July 17th. 52 years. I'm still looking forward to making it to 52 years old. I'm a little fat and 40. I'm worried if I'm going to get there. Oh, you'll get there. <laughs> so 52 years, and you actually come from a very uh, entertaining background. I mean, you have a, your mother was in the entertainment industry and everything, right? Yes, yes. My mother and uncle were a, a, a dance team in vaudeville. Uh, uh, just fantastic. Two, two, uh, could have find two better people. And didn't you and your brother... Didn't it start off as the Wendell bro- the Walker brothers? Oh, uh, my best friend, and everybody was always calling us brothers. And I'd been working, and <clears throat> I'd come to t- I'd come back home, and he was going to college. And in those days, they had a hoot danny, and he asked us one to MC it with him. And without any practice, we went and we MC'd it, and we just hit it off. And we were just ad living back and forth, and we hit it off. That magic that uh, comes along every so often between two people, where they just know what the other one's thinking. Right. And I said, you ought to be doing this, and he dropped out of college and did it with me. And how long did you guys do that for? Because I uh, looked we at did your... it for uh, like uh, six years, and uh, it's really kind of funny. He knew I'd talked out of it because I loved it so much. So he said, I'm going to the store, and he never came back. And it took me <laughs> two uh-huh. years to find him. Wow. That's one heck of a breakup. Yeah, because they had in those days, you had Agva, and you had uh, the player pay. So uh, some places uh, were real gentle with me, and you uh, you had to pay them. Oh, all right. A little bit of old school there, huh? A little yeah, bit of back so, in the rough days. <laughs> I uh, found out he was working for an employment agency, and I kept uh, looked out on the, on the sound, and I kept calling until he answered the phone, and then I spent half an hour calling him every name in the book. I hung up, and about a year later, I ran into him in the street, and uh, uh we got to talking, and uh, when he said that to me, I knew it was the truth that I would have talked about of it. Wow. So, I mean, you got, I mean, in the last 52 years, you've had to see some crazy changes in the entertainment and comedy industry, because you actually, you, you, the first time you got on stage was when you were 18, right? 18, 18, July 17th, 1960, it was a uh, Sunday uh, I was parking cars, and uh, Billy Tipton, uh, who also had Billy Tipton Trio, worked at the Dave Sobel Agency. I parked his car, and I said, how do you become a comic? 
And he said, when do you turn 18? And I told him, and he said, show up, you do five minutes without panicking, and I'll help you. And I was too dumb to panic. <laughs> so that was it, huh? Yeah, it, it took a while for me to find out you were supposed to write an act, and that they weren't supposed to just stare at you. I thought they were polite. <laughs> so how long did you spend, because, I mean, it was different nowadays, and for the last, you know, dozen years, it's a bit about going to open mics or 20 years, you know, going to open mics, becoming a feature, or I'm sorry, going to open mics, then becoming a, you know, an MC and getting guest spots and working your way through. How much was it well, like that 52 years ago? How did it, the industry go? What was different back then? Well, you had, you had a, a, a state line, which was not too far, which was about a half an hour from here, and the whole role of clubs that's catered to kids who could drink at 19. And uh, they would have exotic dances. Uh, it's not like today when they say strippers. They didn't take everything off. But they were exotic dancers. The room was full of 19-year-old kids and, and coal miners and uh, ranch hands. And uh, I was able to get it. Billy got me in out there. And you worked. They didn't care if you worked the other clubs, too. And I worked up and down there. And I learned uh, emceeing the shows. And I learned how to get thick skin and how to handle a heckler and how to duck beer bottles. <laughs> In fact, it's kind of interesting. Uh, old-time comics, you always uh, see they hold the mic in their hand. Right. And uh, that's so you can block a flying beer bottle. <laughs> that was the rule back then. Make, was that in the yeah. training class? Right. Uh, because, you know, the bouncers didn't do anything. They think it's really funny. You know, <laughs> somebody would attack you. you know? I'm picturing an episode of Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. Beer bottles like getting that. thrown. We're in the Blues Brothers. <laughs> they they, they had to that, keep you behind I, a cage. Right, I worked places like that behind a cage, and then I went to uh, just 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 uh, too too dumb to know you can't do that. And I went to uh, Seattle, and I walked in to uh, see Jack Baird at the Colony Club, and uh, this is before your time. But the Brothers Four came out of there: Pat Suzuki, Martin Denny, all those who had big, huge uh, contracts. And I walked in and. Uh, Ended up uh, getting two weeks there, and the two weeks turned into being held over for three years. Wow. And uh, then I, uh, Gene and I, was just enough uh, money to get to Canada because we couldn't get an agent to try to book us there. We went to Canada on our own, and we went into the cave, and Izzy uh, had turned down uh, uh, Alan Rossi, and he wasn't going to do that again with the team, and so he ended up hiring us, and... Uh, a big, huge, beautiful, obscure club. We were opening for uh, Ray Charles. And yeah. uh, uh, we, we did have an hour of total silence. And at the very end, I would say to Gene, now just say goodnight. And when I did that, a voice in the back of the room said, thank God. <laughs> and, 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 and I had to keep Gene from running. I kept my eye on him. And... and uh, there were a fire us and Ray Charles who wouldn't let him. He said if they fired him, he he was going. Wow. And I asked him why, and he said, because the kids have heart. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And the owner came up, and he says, do impressions. They like impressions. <laughs> <laughs> what what impressions did you do back then? Did you have any good ones prepared? Well, all of a sudden, I did Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson and and, and Sullivan. And Gene just stood looking at me because he didn't know I was going to do that. I'd answer everything as, I'm trying to watch Burger Rat. 
So once you actually got settled in the Seattle area and you spent, you know, you did a 20 years pretty much in Seattle of your comedy. So you traveled a little yeah, bit. Yeah, during out. the comedy boom, you could work in Seattle. I, I, I do four shows a night, run wow. from, from uh, place to place. Now, obviously, in your 50-plus years going around doing comedy, one of the questions I like to always ask what I call the old-timers is, did you ever work your way through the Catskills, which is just an area I grew up in with a lot of the, it seemed like a lot of big-time comics came out of there, and it was the start of a lot of the comedy scene. Yeah, we we, we, we did. It was a nice seeing the empty boarded up buildings, because that was just a <laughs> few years ago. Yeah, oh, you were just, you, you were there recently? Yeah, about, uh, well, I guess five, six years ago, uh, the, the first time in my marriage, I was working in Erie at Juniors. Okay. And uh, uh, we took two weeks off, and we drove uh, through the Midwest and to New York and visited her uncle. And went up in the world, it was before, the, it was before 2000, because we went up to the World Trade Center. Right. And uh, then we drove through the Catskills and saw the buildings. And uh, I was absolutely amazed to find out that there was Jewish resorts and there was Italian resorts. Yep. I helped house a lot of those. I was in the housing industry uh, through the late 90s and 2000. My family owned a lot of uh, housing-related industries with manufactured housing up there. So uh, it, it was a great area. It, it was a shame to see the way it's turned into in what used to be really the heart of entertainment, the foothill of the, the, in the Catskills. Was a, it was a great, fun area, and it sprung so many, uh, not just comedy, but so many different forms of entertainment out of there. Well, that's where Martin and Lewis just accidentally got together, and Lewis uh, ran through the room throwing dishes, and they went, and it, it just killed. It right. Killed. So you never, you never got to play back there in the heyday in the seventies and the. No, no, I didn't even know. Were they going in the seventies? Oh, that was back in the seventies and the late sixties, seventies, and I think even into the early eighties was when the Catskill boom was really going. And oh, then, I didn't know that. I wish I'd known that. Yeah, that's back when all the hotels were still up, the Concord, and, you know, every, that's when, you know, Martin, uh, I almost said Martin Short, but uh, Jackie Mason and everybody from New York City would all come up, up and do comedy all throughout there for all that time. Yeah, a, you know, people will ask me, they'll say, uh, who who influenced you? And always, uh, sometimes say you might have seen something written with a say like if uh, Jonathan Winters and Don Rickles had Love Child, it'd be me. Well, <laughs> my my big influence was Jackie Mason. That's great. He he. I he... loved him, and when they say that to me, it always thrills me because it means that I didn't love him so much that uh, you know you'll see people they'll they'll do that person's delivery. Right. Like uh, there for a while. Uh, in, in the 80s, you'd go to an open mic, and all you saw was uh, Steve Martin. Everybody right. was doing Steve <laughs> Martin. Yeah, J Jackie Mason actually called into the show back in January. He was coming into town to the Capitol Theater, and he called in for about 20 minutes. Great guy. Then we went to meet him backstage at the show, and it was a phenomenal experience. Great guy. Took a few minutes out to talk to myself and another comedy friend that was there. It was a really cool experience. I loved his one man his one man show. I just loved that. Yep. Is that Doctor Jewish? I am. <laughs> well, it was great. We actually not that I want to spend a lot of time talking about him, Jackie, but uh, he had talked a lot about uh, he had a lot of new material on President Obama, 
when he had that whole fiasco with uh, having the early celebration for Hanukkah. And oh, Jack... I, I, I wish I'd, I wish I'd uh, heard that because I, I remember my one of my favorite bits was this thing on Reagan. <laughs> What's that? You know, he takes the cowboy, he gets to his horse, and he goes, ha, oh, oh. <laughs> He says that, and it's funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, almost everything, those guys. It, it was such an interesting uh, time. Jan different... Murray, you you know who he was? Dan Murray? Jan Murray. No. Jan Murray had one of the first uh, uh, game shows on television called uh, uh, Treasure Island. It had a number of other shows in the early days of television. And I was working in Lake Tahoe, and I walked across the street to meet him. And they told me, sit right there when he comes out. Just tell him you're a comic and I'll visit with you. And he sat down, and the, the other guy and I, uh, Kurt Charles, visited with him for, oh, 10, 15 minutes. And he started to leave. I said, thanks for the new material. And he turned around. He had that New York look in his eyes. And he was going to kill me. And then he realized I was kidding. <laughs> and eight years later, I was working on a cruise ship to Alaska. And Jan Murray was on the ship with Fred McMurray and uh, oh, June Haver and Ginger Rogers. And he had just written a book called The 20th Century Story. And they would show Double Indemnity and the different uh, movies that they got Academy Awards for, and then they would talk to the passengers afterwards. And I was standing in line to get a cup of coffee, and I turned around, and Jan Murray is, is behind me. And I said, you probably don't remember me. He said, yes, I do. He went to Walker, <laughs> and you were that magician, Kirk Charles, up at the lake. And then eight years goes by, eight years, and I get a call, and I said, would you uh, like to do the Red Wing Casino? Jan Murray would like you to open for him. Wow. I mean, what an amazing memory of people. Right, definitely. It's been a great experience. It's got to make you feel good about it, the first impression yeah, that you well, leave he, on somebody. He was really funny because he was in his 80s, and he didn't know there was two shows. And he found out there was another show, and he's, he's grumbling about he doesn't have the energy. He's too tired and on and on and on. And the minute he was introduced and hit that stage, he was like a 17-year-old kid. Well, that's like you, too, man. You you say every time you walk on the stage, you feel young, and you're always around all the young people in the uh, comedy clubs and theaters. Yeah, it keeps you young because you have to keep up your internment. I told you, be careful, man. You can can get wiggy with it and jiggy with it, but don't break it. Yeah, you get get jiggy with it. I'll take you down. I'll cap you. You know, uh, uh... it, it just it keeps you thinking young. It makes sense because you keep your material fresh and you keep your material current. So, you, you know, in that manner of speaking, definitely, and, you know, it keeps you up and down. And you you're st- you still travel a couple of times a month for clubs? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, uh, it's a little slow now. I mean, I turned down about 11 gigs uh, just because uh, the cost of doing them, you wouldn't make anything. And uh, you didn't have to do that before. But now you have to figure in that gas and the travel and all that. Right. And so you, you, you know, you say you'll do something. I said, well, like a while back, I said, uh, I figured, well, the gas will up maybe a quarter a gallon. And I figured that in, and uh, it, it shot up like uh, 70 cents. And uh, you still have to do the gig, and uh, I lost money. Wow. you got to keep your word. Right. Well, it's funny because... I know we spoke yesterday, and you talked about giving your word because you were the winner at the 2006 uh, San Francisco comedy competition. And during that time, 
what you said it was six individual Sundays, was it, that you had to do the show? Yeah, six days, six uh, six nights uh, each week for three weeks. Right, and you there was, oh, okay. And throughout that time, you had had other shows scheduled where if any one of those uh, clubs would have said, hey, we really need you to still be here, you would have had one day less to perform in the competition. Yeah, I would, I would, I would call and I'd say, uh, you know, I've, I've moved up around, and uh, if it's going to be a problem, I'd like to keep going. If it's going to be a problem, uh, I'll be there. And uh, I told John Fox ahead of time that I was willing to do that, and if anybody said, well, we put out a bunch of money on advertising, and if that, I'd be gone because I'd give my word. And every one of those club owners uh, uh, said, go for it. And uh, we're calling and checking. It was just amazing the outpouring of support I got. And uh, I was able to go back. I'd always said that if I did something that would get me the publicity, that I could go back and fill up that room, I'd go back for the same price. I was not going to bump it. Right. And I was able to get press in every town, and I went back to all those clubs, and I packed out instead of attendance records. And one club owner came up; it was just amazing. And he was a room reserve type guy, and he had tears in his eyes, and he gave me a great big hug and thanked me. And that was that was that was worth it to me. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people, and maybe just generation difference, that would have taken that same opportunity to boost the heck up out of their price to be there for that weekend again. Yeah, well, business-wise, it wasn't smart, but I remember doing those rooms when we weren't full, and they still got paid. You right. know, and uh, so business-wise, it probably wasn't a real good decision, but human-wise, it was. Right, and you, I mean, you, you weren't a 25-year-old kid doing that either. You, you know, you did this. How old were you, actually, You're when you were in the competition? I'm sorry? 62. 62. 62 63, somewhere in there. Oh, that was a that was a golden golden. That was the highlight of my career. I never had so much fun in my entire life. That is awesome. Now you told me there was some comparisons there when we were talking. Uh, how you made sure that you were fortunate enough to be able to do all six of the shows, where there were some people in past. I think you would. Uh, we we Sinbad. Uh, Sinbad was the only one who didn't do the uh, fifth show. I mean, that took a lot of confidence, you know. But I wasn't looking at the scores. You know, each night you can go back and see where you play. So I didn't know that I was uh, in the lead from, from the first night. Uh, I had heard that I was too old to win it, so I was just having fun. And you have an edge when you've been doing it that long. Uh, Robin Williams calls it tr uh, trusting your comic self. So I'll just go with the flow. People will walk up to me after a show, and they'll say uh, something I said. I, I don't even remember saying it. I didn't even know I did it. So, I mean, at this stage of the game, you do so much ad-libbing or just, you know. Right, you just go with the flow. Once in a while, it'll be something that I like so well. It might be just a, a line, and it turns into a bit. But what I do, and my manager does this to me all the time, I'll hear him do, say something to somebody on the phone, and I'll say, that's mine. He'll say, that's right, why'd you drop it? Because if I get something <laughs> new, I drop something. Wow. So, do how often or do you still sit down and write out your material? Or are you to the point where you just try out new stuff while you're on stage? Oh, do you I, I do it in my head on the way to the, show, on the, way to the theater. And then uh, I never I, I never open with what I think I'm going to open with because something will happen and I just don't open with it. When you were younger, did you have more of a set routine? or? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I tell young comics, you know, 
you don't have uh, you never pull out a piece of paper and sit it on a bench or read what you're going to do. I write it down and then fold it and put it in your pocket and it's a security blanket. You know if you get stuck you can reach in your pocket. And I used to do that. Never had to reach in my pocket because I had that security blanket. You know, just knowing you have it there. Right. Gives you the confidence. Uh, one of the funniest things I saw was a guy who wrote, would write it on a, with a, a, a felt pen on his hand, and he was sweating so bad when he looked at his hand and all ran, he couldn't read it. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, he, and of course, that makes comics laugh. We're back, somebody else's agony on stage, we're back to howling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost like they weren't prepared, they didn't do their homework. Uh, I, I do see people go up, I mean, obviously, I still have a lot more open mics than I do anything else. Um, and some guest spots. But while I'm at guest spots, it, it's funny when I see people go up and they take their notebook with them and they put it on the table and they don't even look at it. It's their crutch that, like, you keep it in your pocket. They just never got rid of it. You know? yeah. And they still bring it up. And I'm like, ooh. But that little, that little security blanket there is, is all, all they need. And then all of a sudden, they, you know, maybe after a while, they realize they don't need it. What I keep telling Young comics. I, I do workshops. I don't believe in doing comedy classes. I don't even teach class uh, classes, but you can do workshops. I'll do those for free anytime I can. And uh, one of the things that I kept telling them, and also it dawned on me that it was really stupid for me to be telling them that. And I said, think of the audience as your best friends or your family, and you're at a party because your your friends and your family don't laugh at everything you say, and it doesn't bother you. You're not afraid of the silence. Well. I can say that after all these years, it's easy, you know, right. to tell somebody else to do that, it's not that easy. Yeah, they're worried about getting their, you know, their eight or ten laughs per minute. Yeah, and I tell them to sit down and watch over and over again, watch, uh, 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 oh boy, just mind went blank. Uh, watch Jack what the Benny. other comics are doing? Oh, okay. Watch Jack Benny and learn silence. This is a powerful, powerful tool. Jack Benny could do more with silence. And you know the story about how he, uh, how he uh, was uh, bet George Burns if you say one word and bring the house down. And uh, they had a bet. He walked out on stage and he didn't say a word for for like a minute, and which seems like an eternity. And the tension was building in the audience. What's going on? He had his hand up his face. He looks to the left. He looks to the right. And finally, he just goes, "Well," and he had built it to where the tension is at that point, the minute he said, well, the audience just exploded. <laughs> now that, that, you've been on stage, you know, that takes uh, uh, really a lot of courage and it takes a, a fantastic sense of timing to know exactly when to say well. Yes. And in any bit, nobody, you know, they, they talk all the time, you really don't want to hear silence and it's... I'm learning now not to really be scared of the silence. You know, I think I was a little bit fortunate uh, with just the fact that I was always in sales and on commission and, you know, talking in front of anywhere between one or 10 or 15 people. So that interaction part, I felt a little bit more comfortable, not as comfortable as I thought I did. I mean, the first couple of times on stage, I was like, holy shit, this is awkward. It was different. But after, after I did it so many times, I think I, I started to feel a little bit more easy or comfortable on stage, uh, maybe quicker than some other open micers. I've had more fun working for 20 people than for uh, 10,000. I, 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 
just did a thing in Reno, Nevada for the classic car collectors at the amphitheater. And uh, it was terrible because the, the laughter lasts so long and it comes in a wave at you in a roll. And you're sitting there going, well, you shut up, I want to do my next line. You know, but you can't say it out loud. <laughs> and you, it just seems so awkward to stand there you know, and wait for it to, to go down. I used to step on that laughter all the time. It was in a lot of my lines, people would say, I, I do two hours worth of material in half an hour because I, I would go so fast. And then I got really upset because hypnotists were making way more money. I, I could do an hour and a half. And uh, so I started doing an hour and a half concerts. And uh, by doing that, I, I had to, it was like, I, I equated to fly fishing. And you can't hit them, boom. Like when you have somebody else who's warmed up the audience, you, gotta, you can't just go boom. Uh, you have to make them like you in the very beginning or you're in for a long hour and a half, right? Right, definitely. And then build the energy. And uh, that was the best experience ever, I ever had. I did that for like three years. And when you're doing two shows, you're tired. Yeah, it takes a lot out of you to be up there every between just the anxiety a little bit and the big bright lights. Well, you know what? I tell young comics, you know, don't don't let them know that a joke didn't work because they don't know it was a joke unless you let them know. Right. You know, you just act like that was what they're supposed to be doing. That's what the response was supposed to be doing, and you just keep going. Good advice. It's all being strength. You know, uh, we haven't come so far from the Roman Colosseum as we'd like to think. Uh, uh, People love to watch you uh, sweat. If you start sweating up there and acting like uh, a joke didn't work, you're going to have this group, this group thing comes in. They become like lions. Right. In, in the Roman Colosseum, ready to tear you to pieces. You have to always deal from strength. The couple of times I've had a, a joke not go over well, I've kind of just turned around and addressed the audience and say, well, I guess I won't be taking that. I won't be, you know, I'll be taking that on the lineup or I won't be doing it next week. And that kind of gets the laugh and I move on from there. Now it could be, you know, I'm young and dumb and I should just move on, but I get the laugh by acknowledging. About three years ago, I did something, you know, some of the things that work the best, sometimes I don't even know why they work, but they'll work and I'll keep it. And it was years ago, I didn't get a response. I said, okay, I'll work this side. It always gets a laugh. I have no idea why I'll work this side. It always gets a laugh, but it does. And then I started, uh, I, I, would, I would go, you are the dumbest bunch of shits I've ever seen in my entire life. What do I need, an etch sketch I'm going to explain <laughs> that joke to you because it's really funny. <laughs> and that might be the age thing, I don't know, but they think that's hilarious. I, I, I agree because, I mean... I don't even think the kids of today even know what an etcher sketch is. You know, uh, they they do. You know who my biggest draw is? I always think that uh, I should be working for old people. It's kids. And if you stop to think, we're, we're, you know, everything goes through cycles. I remember in the eighties, if you worked at college, they were the most rude rude kids you ever saw in your life. And now it's totally different. And there's a real I don't know if it's a hunger for the old days. Like you'll notice, every kid knows about the Rat Pack. Every one of them. Right. I have a friend who's touring with the, uh, with the with a show out of Vegas called The Rat Pack, and every and it's full of kids. My best, my biggest draw is kids. Because everybody has a crazy uncle or a right. goofy grandpa. 
And I tell you, you play the crazy guy well because I've seen you in a couple of the old commercials you did for the. There was a mattress store, and then there was another commercial that you have on your website. Uh, it was pretty funny. Some of the things you've done back in, throughout your history there. Uh, the the, uh, the the best one was done by Don Hamilton, who uh, moved here out of L.A. and was in uh, a number of films in the old days. Opened it up. Uh, he, he just does great work, and that would be for the uh, natural gas. Yes. The air belt is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, uh, that was a number of years ago, and I still have people uh, walk up to me and mention that commercial. And everybody and it was can... all him. His his uh, camera work. And any, if anybody wants to listen or check out some of the different things that Jay has done, they can visit him just at jwendelwalker.com. Uh, if you can't spell it, sorry about your damn luck. Sound it out. It's not that rough. Or the classic comic. With the, you have to have the T-H-E in there. The classic comic. The classic com. comic. And that's also .com, right? Yep, that's .com. That's and you have your bio thing. there. You have the diff- some, some of your different photos. They can book you. Check out some of the different videos. Yeah, I... Uh, uh, Comedy Productions has me up their website. That's my manager. And uh, I, I, I'm doing my blogs. You probably read some of the blogs about the yeah, old Yeah, I was just about to bring up the blogs. Yeah, my son uh, is the one who talked me into, in, in, into doing that and gave me the best advice. See, I learned a lot from kids. He gave me the best advice. He says, you just write like you do on stage and then worry about punctuation and spelling and go back. And I got that on my uh, on my uh, uh Web page, and I, I'm going to change that over so that all the blogs are on the, the classic comics. So if somebody's looking to book me or something like that, they can go and see the bio and the videos on 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 jwinterwalker.com with a link to the classic comic, and then they don't have to suffer through looking at all the blogs. <laughs> on here, it talks about some of the things you know, other accomplishments that you've had. Obviously, with some of the TV pilots, but it talks about how in the '70s. You were uh, the founding member and president of the Seattle Independent Comedy Co-op. What was that all about? Yeah, that was. Uh, in fact, that was. I was honored. Uh, first, they gave me a, a, a facetious award called the King Tut Award, man most likely to be uh, discovered posthumously. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I think about nineteen oh eighty six, something like that. I think it was 1983, they inducted me into the uh, Seattle Comedy Hall of Fame. Oh, that's awesome. uh, Congratulations. That was really, really, it was was a group of comics. It was was just wonderful. Uh, I don't know what the open mics were out like uh, like out there, but I was stunned. Like in L.A., they were in the back, and they're, 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 uh, you know, grumbling about whoever's on stage. And a lot of backbiting, but back in those days, we had a place on Sunday where the guy was a real fan of comedy, and we would have these three-hour shows, and you'd have visiting headliners who were in town who'd go up there and try out new material, and everybody wrote new material. Every 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 Sunday, we'd go there and write new material, and afterwards, we'd all go up to the Bidding Ridge Bar, and we'd sit there and get just plain tanked and talk about comedy. And That's it was, great. Uh, it was just there. Everybody there was very supportive of each other. Uh, we actually have a a work group where we do the same thing. Uh, we spoke. I broke away from the group last night when we uh, for a call with you. But uh, I hang out with a couple of different comics. One of the one of the guys, Steve Eric, who's been doing comedy about twenty five years, 
Um, he's there almost every Sunday, if not every Sunday. And, you know, like you, he does them for free. He's happy to come and he's helped coach other comics through the writing groups. But, uh, he sits down with us and we'll go over some of our jokes and he'll be like, okay, well, this is a needless line and you know, you need to get to the point over here and this is something that you can elaborate it. And then we go to, uh, here it's just Perkins, but oddly enough, I'm sitting with Steve Eric and Paul Olin, and we're in the same Perkins where Steve Eric used to go with uh, Dan Whitney and Tom Ryan and other comedians that are huge now, Dan Whitney obviously being Larry the Cable Guy. But, uh, I mean, here I am hanging out with Steve, and we're, you know, we're going to the same places. So it's kind of a cool experience, and we do the same thing. First we talk about comedy at the workshop, and then we talk more comedy over food. It's great. Well, that's wonderful. I don't understand the the backbiting. I'll have people say to me, uh, uh, Ryan Stiles, Jake Johansson, uh, uh, George Miller, I don't know if you remember him, at one time he had the most, uh, Tom Driesen, both of them had the most appearances on The Tonight Show. Yep. And they'll, they'll say to me, does that bother you? These guys used to feature for you. And I said, why should it bother me? I was a road comic. That's what I wanted to be. Uh, I was able to raise five kids uh, doing that. I didn't go to L.A. or or, or to New York and pay the dues that they did. And uh, I'm thrilled. I get goosebumps when I see them right. on, on on TV. I mean, it, it thrills me. Why would it, Why would that bother me? Right. And I had Tom Driesen on the show back a couple of months ago, one of the nicest guys. Yeah, I saw that. He, he, what, did he give you the story about uh, living in his car and walking seven miles to the comedy store? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he gives it to everybody. He handed me a card, and it must have been him and Johnny Dark were working across the street from me up at Lake Tahoe, and uh, we got together. And he hands me this card. And says, "Anytime you're here and you need a place to stay, give me a call." And there must have been fifteen phone numbers. <laughs> was the guy have? It was before cells, you know. And right. Was the guy? Uh, the, the guy must have a phone in each room. <laughs> that is great. Yeah, he's a great guy. He does a lot of, you know, he opened for uh, Sinatra. Yes. Had a wonderful, wonderful uh, 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 Many years time he did doing that. that. And then now he does a lot of uh, big celebrity golf tournaments. Yeah, uh, I'm always seeing him post. Uh, I see you have him on Facebook like me. He's always posting pictures with great celebrities and golfing. Uh but he does a lot. He still does a lot of comedy himself as well. He's out there. He's also doing the uh, uh, Frank Sinatra show where that he goes out and does a one man show in honor of Frank. Yeah, and he will. Uh, he will go out of his way to help a young comic. He's just a great guy. Yeah, he told the story about when he was doing comedy. He went up to another comic who took out an hour or two hours of their time to talk to him, and he said, "You know that." was one of the best experiences that happened and he said i promised myself i'm always gonna go ahead and help other fellow comics i i i, I uh, told him my story about how i met sinatra and i thought he was going to uh i, I thought he was going to have a heart attack he was laughing so hard uh, how did you meet I sinatra was in, i was invited to do a uh a showcase for uh, all, all the uh, entertainment directors and the agents and stuff up in lake tahoe and my agent was supposed to show up, and I had an 8 o'clock slot, which is just perfect, right? And my agent, I forget, his car broke down or something anyway. He wasn't there. And uh, I kept getting bumped, and it was 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And I'd been there so long that Vince DeMauer, 
the Mater D, and I had become friends. See <laughs> how long I'd been there. And in those days, I would pace a lot before I went up. And uh, uh, so I was pacing all over the place. And finally, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I finally, uh, in Vistamauer, called up his wife, got her out of bed, and she grabbed 15 people because by the time the place had emptied out, I had hardly anybody there. But you're not going to say, no, I'm not going to do it and, and uh, upset any anybody who was there, right? So I go up there and I do my time for like, like 16, 17 people. And I come off and uh, Vince comes up to me and he says, the boss wants to see you. And I thought, oh my God, I, I must have slipped, said something I couldn't, I shouldn't, because in those days you had to be careful. And they take me to the back of the room and there's a bunch of guys sitting at a table in the dark. And when I get back there, Sinatra turns around and says, tough gig, kid, but you pulled it off. And I said, thank you, Mr. Sinatra. And I turned around and I walked into a post. <laughs> and blood was running down the front of my shirt. And I was smart enough to do a Jerry Lewis walk out of there to, to the sound of their laughter. <laughs> and I get across the theater and Vince says, what happened to you? And I said, you know, that, that Sinatra's really uptight. And... <laughs> that was right after that incident where Sinatra was supposed to have hit an employee at the Calneva. Okay. I don't know if you remember that. So no. when I said that Sinatra's really uptight, <laughs> his mouth fell open because he, he thought Sinatra hit me. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and I always thought that was so nice of him to uh, to give encouragement like that you know, to somebody. You know, just a, a real gentleman. You know, Sinatra did a lot of really good things. Uh, Definitely. You, you hear about somebody having a bad bad time, he just anonymously sent a check. Wow. That's great. But I've had a chance to work with his son. And, uh, oh, it's, it's been wonderful. I worked with Sandy Hackett, met uh, uh, Buddy Hackett, his father. Uh, nobody could tell a story like Buddy Hackett. Yeah, I that was one of the guys I grew up watching, Buddy Hackett, uh, Red Skeleton, George Burns, loved all those guys. Have you seen that clip of him on the on the Johnny Carson show? Buddy and Hackett? That's a joke. I've heard a street joke that I must, must have heard a hundred times. And I'm howling. I'm, I'm laughing so hard, my stomach muscles are hurting. Uh, Johnny Carson uh, fell off his chair. Uh, he knocked over <laughs> after his joke. He knocked over the end table. I mean, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. You'll see it on the internet. It'll pop up every so often. All right. Well, you had your own experience on. Uh, you were on the Ed Sullivan show, right? Yeah, sixty-four and sixty-five. I, I mean, that was had to be you, some other great story. experiences. Block was the music coordinator on that show, and I was working in Butte, Montana. And uh, a guy comes up to me and, and said, uh, Bill Block sends his regards. He was too old to he'd moved to Butte. You know, a lot of uh, big uh, big people have moved there to Montana. Uh -huh. And uh, he he had one of his uh, one of his staff come down and watch the show and come up and say hi to me. That's awesome. You know, I've always I've always found that the people with the most talent are the best people. It's the the ones who raise cane and and uh, demand a bunch of stuff and are miserable to be around. Are usually the ones who don't have that. Uh, they're not the most talented of the people. Right. I want to ask you a question about America's Got Talent. Yeah, that was fun. That yeah. Was... <laughs> you were now, so you made it to the finals, and that was in what two thousand eight. Made it the, the first year. The first year. And it was it was it was wonderful. I got an invite uh, 
They actually flew me to L.A. And uh, when I get to there's a line going around the block. You've seen, they always show the very right. beginning, and there's people going in there and wait for hours all day long to audition for, for 90 seconds. And uh, they just took me right past the crowd, took me upstairs, took me right in there, and I can't help it. Um, I just go with the flow, and the guy is, is typing something as I'm doing it. And I jumped on him, and I said, Listen, I got 90 seconds. This could make or break my life. Would you pay attention? <laughs> <laughs> and the, guy, the guy's mouth falls open. He looks up at me, and I got it on the spot. So then they <laughs> flew me out, and I had a chance to work the Orpheum Theater, which my mother had worked. Mother and uncle had worked. Wow. Uh, back in the vaudeville days. So I had, uh, of course, it's been remodeled. You know, it's not, it's, I don't want you to think it's the 30s theater with no lights. <laughs> but, no, no. But it's it's a little piece of history bumps. still. I had goosebumps. And I walked out there, and uh, I knew that Piers Morgan is, is supposed to play the bad guy, right? Right. So I expected to get, he had to have all three brothers go off to be eliminated. And, of course, I, I within the first second, Piers Morgan hit that buzzer, and I had no idea that buzzer was going to be that loud. And if you if you see it on TV, it looks like I'm breakdancing, because I did a complete spin in the air and came down. <laughs> and the minute I landed, I walked over to him and leaned over the stage and said, would you get over the War of 1812? And Sherry <laughs> Osborne said, we won that one, keep going. I said, you didn't really win it. You burned, the, you, you burned down our White House, but we sacked Montreal, and you didn't care because they were French. <laughs> and boom, the time was up. <laughs> and uh, then they flew me to Vegas, and uh, boy, that was uh, that was uh, sad, but at the same time, it was fun. Uh, the room was just packed with with people, young kids who were just terrified. And uh, riding back to the airport, there was a young kid who who. who uh, didn't did make it out of the semifinals. It was the most beautiful pianist you'd ever heard your entire life. And he was really down. And so I was giving him a pep talk to him and his parents about, you know, you've got a whole career ahead of you and, and uh, uh, many, many years. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I think part of the reason that you probably turned out and most real young kids never really make it to the top five is because they're looking for somebody to do a Vegas show. And you, 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 know, you can't have a 13-year-old piano uh, prodigy. Right in Vegas, but it was it was really sad because there were so many talented young kids there who thought it was the end of the world, and it, it's not the end of the world. It's uh, something you learn from. You don't take it personal. Well, I think it has a lot to do with now. Kids are so hooked into TV and the internet and reality TV that that is their reality, and to them, it is crushing. Just like. You know, if the TV goes out, their video games break or their cell phone's gone, they don't know what to do. It's a different time. I mean, I remember when my father used to kick me out of the house for the day and say, it's Saturday, you don't go play baseball and kickball and ride your bike. Don't come back till the sun sets. And that was the norm. Now, it's hard to get the kids out of the house. They're so tied into it all. Yeah, they don't use their, their imaginations. But at the same time, you know, when the Internet came along, I was terrified of it until a guy told me, the reason kids are so good at it is they've never experienced failure. My generation is used to things breaking, and there's nothing on the computer that can break. There's nothing you can't back out of. And right. the minute I realized that, then uh, everybody's so surprised. I had to teach my son how to clean his hard drive. He's 26, <laughs> and he didn't know how to clean his hard drive. 
Yeah, you know, I know my father's got gotten very. I mean, he's. I think he still does the one finger typing, but he's gotten. You know, he backs up his own high drive, hard drives. He works on his computers. I think he likes being able to take the time out to figure it out. It's you know, he's retired. It's the little puzzles that keep him going now. I love it. You, we wouldn't be talking right now if it wasn't for the internet. I have friends in Africa. I have friends in uh, Puerto Rico. I have friends all over the world. You're probably seeing I have a lot of friends. Absolutely. Yeah, 8,000 8, subscribers to the stupid stuff I write. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, it's like every town I go to, it's like going back to visit family. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I am lucky. I have a wife who's waited all these years to travel with me, and she just is having the time of her life. It's funny. Before you got on the phone... Because, you know, it took you a little while to get there, you know, step by step, minute by minute we waited. So I started to talk to your wife, and you guys are married about 38 years. And, she, you know, she was telling me that, you know, the dinner table at, with, at your house is pretty crazy because four out of five of them are, of the kids are comics and, you know, are very funny themselves. And one's a cop with no sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he suffers. <laughs> Don't you tell a joke about how he pulled you over? <laughs> well, you, you, you know, uh, the, the average dinner is like my uh, uh, Carmen, my one daughter would say, uh, please pass the gravy. And the other daughter, Jackie, says, why don't I just pour it on the hips? That's what's going to end up. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I think if I, if I said that to my sister, she would smack me. You know, it's just back and forth. It's, 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 uh, you, you've probably seen it on the Internet when she was singing with something. She, her, her Facebook name is Johnny Cat. Right. She is, she's got a business. Uh, I don't understand uh, house setting cats. I don't think you can walk them. But you can house them. It is interesting. And people pay... It, for house sitting cats and dogs, people pay a lot of good money for you to come hang out in their house, watch their TV, and take care of their pets while they're gone. Yeah, and uh, I, 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 I'm absolutely uh, crazy about animals. I'm just, I, I'm just nuts about them. And uh, uh, we take care of our neighbor's dog. Uh, when she goes somewhere, Keila is just the most fantastic dog. I think she's small, but she's a big dog, big lab. And my wife, she's not allowed to sit in anybody's lap but mine. And uh, she's just in my lap, and then when she gets off, I go and I have traction. <laughs> How big's the dog, though? I mean, labs are good-sized dogs. Lab. 80? It's a, not a lab, but Irish Setter. It's a big Irish Setter. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, they're not a small dog. No, not at all. And my vision has is, 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 is gotten... Uh, Gotten bad. The other night, I got up and I kissed the TV good night, and I should have known it was my wife because it was talking to me. <laughs> oh, I was waiting man. to stick that line in there. I thought about it this afternoon. There you go. It was a perfect timing. Yeah, I was looking for a place I could sneak that in. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about, you know, everybody's always got all these great jokes about their wives and their stories about living with ladies. I, I, I'm thinking about just moving one in just so that I can get better at comedy. I think that's well, you the know, key. My, my, my wife, I've never, I've, I've seen guys who dated gals, they love comedy and they love comics until they get married. And the minute they're married, they're sort of jealous of it. My wife, if you were here in town, my wife would insist you stay here and she has just one rule. 
And that is that you're not company, you're a member of the family, so if you want something to eat, go in the refrigerator and get it for yourself. If you want a towel, get a towel. Yeah, that's your only rule. You act like a member of the house. There you go. I mean, that's fantastic that I can invite Connick's to stay here. And I have a wife who loves them. Well, be careful, because I just told a whole bunch of comics who listen to the show how to get to your website. Now they're going to start calling you when they're traveling and be like, hey, let me save some money and stay by your house. Oh, they all do. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you know, in all these years, there's only been one that she doesn't want to have come back, and, and the reason for that is because he's one of these whiners, how it isn't fair. You know, life right. isn't fair to him. He should be here. He should be there. He should you just know, be we grateful have, for the uh, fact We have a tendency to, count, to look at what we don't have instead of looking at what we have. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I've financially fallen flat in my face before and, you know, done some crazy jobs and stuff to work myself back up to, you know, being financially stable and get, you know, secured with a good position again. So, you know, I, I learned a lot about not taking anything for granted. Well, here, here's the kind of wife I have. I had uh, almost 500000 saved up for, for retirement, and uh, I had heart failure on a heart transplant list, and my heart came back. And But uh, during that period, we went through every cent of that money, and I just looked at my wife and said, wasn't it wonderful? I got, I got a couple of good bits out of that. <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's true. Uh, uh, I did some shows right after that, and they did they, 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 the press had just jumped on that thing. You know, they always like these tragic stories of overcoming stuff. And uh, so I'd have a lot of people show up who were in the in, in the medical field, and I'd, I'd do that bit. And it, it was absolutely true. You know, people say things when they're shocked uh, that, that uh, seem a little bizarre at the time. And, and they called us in to see Pam, the, the transplant coordinator. And right. she said I would have to, they put in the defibrillator that I'd have to have a mechanical heart and then I'd have to go on a waiting list for a human heart. And my wife said, what does it cost? Like, if it's not on sale, I wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> and Pam's mouth fell open, and she said, well, it's 500000 $500, for the mechanic heart, and it's 800000 for the human heart. And my wife said, why is the human heart less money? I more money. And I looked at her, and I said, because it's used. <laughs> and... <laughs> Pam is sitting there with her mouth wide open, and my wife says, do we get the mechanical heart back? And Pam said, why? And she said, well, maybe we can go on eBay and get some of our money back. <laughs> and, and two weeks later, I'm sitting at home, the phone rings, and it's Pam. And she says, I just found, she said, I thought that was a bizarre conversation, but I just found out you're a comic. That's funny. I fell off the chair. It took her two weeks to realize that was funny. <laughs> Well, I, I guess in such a, a weird situation that could happen. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I would have thought that she would have smiled and giggled, but I guess she was so horrified by, or, you know, just the initial well, yeah, response. Well, dealing with people who, uh, you know, that's kind of a stressful moment. But for me, I got, I got just fantastic attention at the hospital because I, I was always cracking jokes at him. That's why I handle things. So they weren't listening to anybody moan and groan. Uh, you know, they'd come in there, and I'd be giving them a bad time. And I found out afterwards I wasn't supposed to live, you know, and uh, I wasn't thinking that. I was giving people a bad time. Right. I, have a doc I had a doctor from Romania 
look at, at the computer, and then she looked over at me. Now, you learn English, but you don't learn phrasing, right? And she looks over at me, and she goes, Jay, you're a hard man to kill. And I started <laughs> laughing. I was howling. She says, Jay, why are, you, why are you laughing? And I said, well, thanks for the heads up. I didn't know my doctors have been trying. Well, <laughs> that became a bit. You know, yeah. it becomes a bit. It's probably, I'm sure it's a bit that gets killer laughs, too. Well, I'm, I'm firmly convinced, if you read studies on humor, I'm firmly convinced that's why my heart came back and I didn't have to have a transplant and why I'm still going. I, I, I'm happy to hear it. You know, uh, a, a lot of different comics that I've had on have talked about uh, the experiences they've had with laughter and healing. Um, you know, everything from with cancer patients, people with recovery from surgery, uh, everything. I mean, it's, I think it's definitely true. It's, there, there's no doubt about it anymore that laughter is medicine. Well, years ago, back in the 80s, I think it was, there was a, fel a fellow who was told that it was terminal, and uh, he went out and he, he, he decided he was going to do a project. He was going to see what effect uh, humor had because it releases endorphins and all those, those different things, right? And uh, he'd watch Three Stooges uh, things in his room, and, he'd, and he used humor. And you know what? He, uh, he, was, he for no reason at all, healed. Hey, look at that. I've done shows with seven separated ribs, and I didn't feel a thing until I got off stage. And I've told my doctor over and over again, I said, if you could find a way to take whatever that chemical is, besides the dopamines that are released right. into the system, you would have a non-addictive uh, pill that wasn't a narcotic. There you go. Because you don't feel... Uh, my wife always says that I do my best shows when I'm sick. And I, I think we overcompensate and you work harder. Right. And I'm sure you've had a situation where you've been on stage where you weren't feeling good. You didn't even realize it until you got off. It's the, the adrenaline, and it does keep yeah. you going. But, Jay, we are down to, like, the last two minutes of the show. So I do want to give a quick shout-out. And first, I want to thank you very much for calling in. But I want to mention yeah. to everybody that this week on uh, the ninth, I'm sorry, the 19th in Tampa, Florida, uh, I'm part of a group of people, uh, some musicians and comics that are going to be holding a, a charity event for a comedian, Caleb, that was, uh, unfortunately, he was shot in Colorado during that Batman shooting at the movie theater. So we're going to be having an event. It's going to be at the Tampa Picture Show in Tampa, Florida. It's off of Dale Mabry, and if you guys want to come out, tickets are $10. Uh, there's going to be some great raffles and some great entertainment. Obviously, myself, Dave Frank, Fat Davey. Uh, there's going to be Johnny Bell, Johnny Oz, and John J. Murray. Uh, we we may have one other comic who's going to be there, but we have some great mu musicians and some assistants that have been getting everything put together, so we're looking forward to doing that show. And I think we're going to have Caleb's comedy mentor calling in next Monday uh, to say hello and see how things went. And again, I want to thank you for calling in tonight, Jay. Yeah, I, you know, my wife and I were talking last night, and I told her, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of stories. I had a chance to hang out take my dad on the road with me when he's in his 90s and hear stories about his depression. Every time we have uh, something like this economy happen, it's amazing at how much people pull together and start helping each other. And I'm really proud of the, of the uh, comedy community, and a, lot, a, lot of, a large amount of those are, are open uh, kids who are in the open mic stage 
who are pulling together for this kind of a situation that you guys are doing. Thank you. Uh, that's really one of your great, 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 great people. I got to get out to Florida so I can meet you. Come on down. Bring the wife. You guys could stay by me. I'll get a bigger place just for you. Shoot, I want to go alone and meet some of those. Uh, Leave her at home, man. We'll go shopping for babes on the beach. I'll yeah, do better with you as my wingman. Yeah, because I, I I told my wife I wanted to have more children, and, and of course, uh, she's uh, too old. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'll call you off the air. We'll set up a date for you to come on out, and we'll go looking for bunnies on the beach. But yeah, for let now, me go back. The last time I was there was uh, in, in, in Orlando for... Uh, they call it the class of 50. They were bomber pilots. Uh, and uh, their their mascot was an 86-year-old woman who every time uh, I said something she thought was funny would hit the guy next to her who was almost, uh, he couldn't use his arm when the show was over. <laughs> All right, Jay, I got to wrap it up because we do have another show coming on in. So I will speak to you soon. I'm going to send you over some copies of the show within the next 24 hours or so so you can blast it out to all your friends and everything. Help make okay, me. I want to, I want to ride your fame and make my show better. I've been uh, plugging down my page, doing the best I could. I appreciate it. I read it. Uh, there's plenty of likes. And, uh, again, thank you very much for coming on you the know, show. Maybe I can put up a link on my, uh, on my uh, web page, too. Sounds great. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll talk about that off the air, though, all right? Keep in touch, and, and uh, God bless you guys. Thank you very much. You have a great night, and we'll speak to you soon. Tune in next week, everybody. Thanks for listening in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com. If you missed this show or would like to catch up on past shows, visit us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Frank's Podcast. And have a great night. We'll see you next week. What was that? I'll tell you what that was. That was another fine show from ComedySlamRadio.com, where we put the dot com in.